Welcome to Healthy Her, the podcast designed to inspire women to lead lives filled with health and happiness. I'm Dr. Amy Brenner, your host discussing nutrition, hormones, aesthetics, sexual health, and more. Join us each week as we dive into feeling better, looking better, and living better. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast, Healthy Her. Today I have a really special guest. Um, uh, I know there's a lot of physicians that listen to this podcast. And if you're in the know, we actually have like an almost celebrity here with us, Dr. <laughs> Red Allen Saad. I would say he's uh, probably the father of cosmetic gynecology and uh, invented uh, or came up with a lot of these techniques that we use. Uh, I, I trained with him at uh, the Allen Stodd Institute and uh, use his techniques. He's also uh, inventor of a lot of devices, um, the Lone Star Retractor that uh, a lot of urogynecologists use in pelvic floor. Um, but anyway, welcome uh, Dr. Allen Stodd. Well, thank you for the very kind invitation and introduction. I really appreciate it. It just means that I'm really old and been doing this for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so I just gave you gave people the highlights about your background, but can you give people the extended version of uh, your career path and oh, sure. qualifications and how you ended up uh, uh, being so, I mean, just world renowned in cosmetic gynecology? Well, thanks. It's a, a tortuous path. I was actually wanting to be a, a GYN oncologist. And after my uh, residency at Loma Linda, this was, uh, I started in 86 and finished in 90. I was actually going to be a Gen Onc and I got accepted to Yale's Fellowship for Gynecologic Oncology. And at that time in my career path, that was right after I had also become the, the first Rutledge fellow at MD Anderson. So my, my whole career was pelvic surgery because I, I love pelvic surgery. And so I, I did all those things. And then I got into the fellowship and I didn't even get to start. It was a, a, a heartbreak because this was the time of the first Gulf War. If you're old enough to remember that, we, we went to war and, in um, Iraq and I got pulled i was an air force scholar and so i got pulled out of the fellowship i i wasn't even allowed to start and so i was exceptionally disappointed so i had um uh, several years of of heartbreak because i couldn't do the fellowship i had uh, but i was very proud to to go active duty with the air force and so i spent a year at george air force base and then three years at nellis air force base in las vegas and that's where my my background of gin onk um, uh, helped me because I was able to transform a lot of those, those, uh, vulvectomy surgeries I had done during all these rotations and, and the vaginoplasties that I had done, I had, um, two urogynes in my residency that proctored me, preceptored me, and almost like a, a fellowship for, for three years at Loma Linda. And so I transformed a lot of those, um, exoneration, uh, vulvectomy, um, radical vulvectomy, modified radical vulvectomies into cosmetic GYN type procedures. I didn't know there was a demand. I just thought the way we were doing it was, wasn't really pretty. We were trying to save lives with gen onc surgeries. And so I just modified some of those procedures and started doing things like um, labia majoroplasty, which wasn't even a term there. It was modified radical vulvectomy. 
and I started doing labioplasties for the Air Force uh, wives. I was the uh, the doctor for the Thunderbirds. If you guys remember those aerial acrobatic teams in Las Vegas, I was at Nellis Air Force Base. And so the the people there knew of my love for pelvic surgery. So they asked if I could do their labial um, surgeries to change the appearance and all that, menorah majora, um, hood area. So I started doing it um, uh, because I was Air Force. It was all done for free. And then when I got out of the Air Force in, two, in 1994, I loved pelvic surgery. And at that time, 1994 was when... Um, you know, in Europe, gynamesh was being developed and transobturator slings and, and things like that were being researched. And so I dove headfirst into that and I ended up teaching um, uh, GYN at Harbor UCLA for their fellowship and at UCLA for their residency. And um, so we, I was in early, there were no fellowships for your gynecology at that time. So I became a, um, since I had a lot of experience in pelvic surgery, they made me a clinical professor. And that's how I, I started. I, I started teaching the residents and Harbor UCLA fellows. And um, in, I in urogynecology. In urogynecology. Yeah. But I had all that background in um, cancer surgery, vulvectomies and things like that. And so I started doing that together. None of the fellows really were interested in cosmetic GYN or making things pretty down there. They just want to learn how to do um, mesh repairs. I, I was the the guy who taught how to do augmented repairs um, with biologics and with um, uh, ultralightweight polypropylene. Um, I brought the ultralightweight one from Scotland to the United States in 2005. And it's still the surviving um, polypropylene mesh out there. It's uh, called Restorel now, but when I yeah, brought so it Yeah, so for in, patients that are listening, yeah. he's talking about... Um, the, the mesh that people use that physicians use for prolapse. So cystic right. seals and rescue seals and things like that. Yeah. It was remarkable because these ultra lightweight meshes in the right hands in a trained surgeons were so wonderful. The failure rates were, you know, one or 2% instead of 16 to 20%. But you know, because so many untrained people were, were doing these type of procedures, the FDA finally clamped down and most most of the mesh products left the market, as you know, about a decade ago. But the surviving one, the one that Coloplast still has, it's called Restorel. That's the one I brought into the market um, uh, back in 2005. And that's been, I still use it occasionally on the worst severe cases. I still use it once in a while, not so often anymore because of all the backlash and all the legal action that goes on, goes on with that. But that's my background. Um, I, I changed uh, a, a cancer surgery uh, into a cosmetic one, and I also love pelvic reconstruction. And so I, I uh, used all the urgine skills that I had learned from my esteemed uh, staff, and I, I just modified it. I changed it so that it could be done in the office. Because, you know, remember back then, we did everything in the operating room. Sure. No one did these type of procedures in the office. So when I... I um, got out of my first 10 years of private practice. I left the Air Force and then I joined a group. I worked 10 years, did mostly gynecologic surgery. I left there and moved my practice to Laguna Beach in 2004. And in 2005, I started seeing patients and all those things that I had learned, um, but I couldn't do much of because I was in a group that was heavy in insurance. 
I, I uh, stopped taking insurance and I started doing. So you left a big group and started your own practice in Laguna Beach. Okay. Yep. 2005. And that's when the cosmetic gynecology started? For me, it was when I went 100% full-time into cosmetic gynecology, 2005. And that's when I was finally able to put all those skills I had learned into the office, Um, office labioplasty, office uh, vaginoplasty, perineoplasty, all those things that I had um, kind of mastered in the operating room, I brought into the office. Because in the last few years of my private practice, I I would tell the anesthesiologist um, to, to just get the patient lightly asleep, and then I would give local anesthetic. And that's all they would do. They would just get, get the patient comfortable enough for me to do my local anesthetic. And that's where I learned all my local anesthetic skills, my, um, <clears throat> excuse me, my pudendal block, which we all learn, right? You learn pudendal blocks in in residency for obstetrics, but not for pelvic surgery. And so we know we we both know pudendal blocks don't work for deep pelvic surgery. So I modified it and added the levator block to it, and I injected not just the pudendal nerve, but the levator branch of the pudendal nerve into the perineum. And shock! I was shocked. I was able to get these patients comfortable so that I can do these deep dissection, these deep surgeries when they're talking to me. So 2005 is when I first doing that in the office. And yeah, well, I was nervous on my first few dozen or so. But after that, I realized, man, this is safer than doing it in the operating room. The patient's awake talking to me. They go home. They have no um, tube down their throat. They have no needle in their spine. And I thought, this is a better way. Uh, I need to start teaching that. And so that's when I, I started teaching um, after 2005 is I started teaching my my techniques in Laguna Beach. And then um, a few years later, you came by. I was very happy to see you there. Yes. So, uh, so yes. So one of the things I learned from you, which we're going to talk about today is uh, vaginoplasty. And uh, you perfected this technique and have taught a lot of doctors worldwide. Um I trained with you, I don't know, several years ago, and uh, you're right. The thought of doing a vaginoplasty in an office setting is is kind of crazy, but uh, but, uh, you're right. It works really well, and uh, patients are comfortable and and just sleeping or playing on their phone or listening to their- Yeah, most of the time they're texting their friends, and sometimes they turn their phone around and say, hey, Dr. Ansad, say hello to my best friend. Yeah. So let's get into it. Some people might not even know what a vaginoplasty even is. So can you just start at the beginning? And what is a vaginoplasty? What are we even talking about? Sure. Well, vaginoplasty surgery is a surgery where you reduce the diameter of the vagina from a a gaping uh, opening and also not just the opening, the, the deep part of it to reduce the diameter. On average, reduce it half half the size of what it was. That's probably the average is a half reduction. And this is a procedure done for patients who who have reduced friction. They don't feel their partner. Sometimes they're anorgasmic or have a very difficult time achieving orgasm because they just don't feel their partner. And one of the terms, you, I'm sure you've heard it, is, um, what is it, a hot dog in the hallway? You've heard that, and that's a lot, a lot of my patients say, I just don't feel my partner. And it stems mostly from um, the stretching of tissues during childbirth. Childbirth is the number one 
cause of um, uh, looseness or laxity or increased diameter. So we call it vaginal laxity or, or loose vagina. And these are the patients who come in and who want to have increased friction and to narrow the size of the entire canal, not just the opening, not just the way it looks, but uh, reduce the gaping look, sure, but also reduce this diameter all the way up. Um, patients who do a lot of weightlifting, um, chronically bearing down, um, patients who have connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos may have stretchy skin. And even if they haven't had babies because of the long-term bearing down, like for example, chronic constipation, that can stretch skins. I've done vaginoplasties on patients who've never had babies, but were super uh, heavyweight lifters, uh, Ehlers-Danlos, Marfan syndrome. They're, they're the ones that also have laxity, but I would say 98%. It's patients who've had large babies or even normal sized babies that can stretch everything out because you know it depends on the size of the partner too the diameter of the partner is important sure how do you assess and i know this is what you taught during your course but how do you assess or could you explain to people how we assess if somebody's a good candidate for a vaginoplasty certainly they come in and during the consultation say all those words that you mentioned is you know, I typically hear things like, I just feel dead down there since I had kids and I just don't feel anything. I feel like I'm gaping. I just feel so loose. But when you're doing an exam, what are you typically looking for? Well, typically after, I don't even ask the patients um, about vaginal laxity or looseness. I have it in my intake form. I have checkoff sheet where they'll say, I can't feel my partner. I feel loose. I have vaginal gas. I, you know, I'm passing vaginal gas when when I squat, exercise, or have sex, and, or, or even my 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 partner says she he doesn't feel anything. Um, I'm I'm having a hard time having an orgasm. So I have all those down on my intake form. So I, I typically I don't even have to ask. I look at the page and I see the check sheets, the checks on one side of the page, and I know this is the problem they have, they're they're concerned about the looseness. And then the other side of the page, they've checked it off, and those are the checks for like large labia, irregular labia, uh, they're too long. So I, I have it segmented, it's, it's it's pretty easy. So I can take a look, look at my piece of paper and know what their their symptoms are gonna be. So um, my, my intake form asks them, and then I ask them personally, so is this uh, a concern for you? Because a lot of people, with um, a gaping vagina or loose vagina, they have no issues. And so I, I don't try to bring it into their head that they have issues. If they don't complain of it, I don't I don't bring it up. If they check, then I will ask them, is this an issue? Does this bother you? Is this embarrassing? And then um, I, I'm really attuned to the patient who wants a second chance in life. For example, the one that's just recently divorced, okay? And that's a lot in my population. When I was in Laguna Beach, the average age of my patient was about 44, 45. Uh, it's a beach community, wealthy community. And so um, there was uh, people who wanted second chances in life. They, they thought that, okay, I'm, I'm divorced. I can start dating now, but I don't have that confidence. You know, it just looks ugly down there. It looks so gaping. Um, and I don't, when, when I've tried having sex, I, I don't feel my, my partner, my partner complains. Uh, that's not so often, but sometimes I get that uh, symptom told to me. And those are the ones I, I will tell them, 
well, you know, you, you have choices nowadays before you kind of just have to live with it. But nowadays you can actually have a choice to try to increase your sensitivity, reduce your friction, increase your, your, um, your quality of life, reduce the diameter of your vagina. And we can do it either um, non-surgically with the new lasers or radiofrequency device, or we can do it more aggressively with um, surgery, uh, a vaginoplasty. Um, if they have, for example, a lot of people, you've seen this, a lot of people come to you and they, they feel loose, but when you examine them, they have this bulge coming out. They have a, a prolapse of a, of a, a rectum typically or a prolapse of a bladder coming out. And those are the people you can combine both a functional repair, you know, a posterior repair, get rid of the bulge. And then on top of it, do the layered closure to give them the exact diameter. And that's, that's kind of my bread and butter because I'm a urogynecologist. I fix a lot of um, pelvic prolapse. And then these patients, you know, while I'm there, they're going to want to have an improvement in the way it looks, the entry and also full depth. And that's really the core of my practice is combining the, the uh, function with, uh, with the appearance. You know, I've had several patients who have gone to a traditional urogynecologist or a traditional gynecologist and had the bulge fixed, had the um, rectocele repair or the cystocele repair. And they're thinking that this is going to fix the the laxity feeling or the decreased sensation. And I've seen a lot of people where the bulge is gone, but they still have laxity. And when I examine them, I can still put, you know, four, four, five fingers in and it didn't, it fixed their bulge and their feeling of pressure sensation and fixed the medical problem, but didn't really fix the, the sexual sensation problem. Yeah, that's a problem um, for the patients because they're coming in for two things, the, the functional problem. Like, for example, they, they'll tell you that they got this bulge and they also can't get the stools out, right? They're getting stuck in the perineocele right behind the perineum, but then they're also loose. But we're all trained to fix the posterior repair, but few are trained in how to reduce the diameter or the doctor who's not trained in doing vaginoplasty will say, oh, it's the same thing. You just you just um, trim the excess vaginal tissue off and you'll get the tightness that, that she needs. But that's not true. You and I know that's not true. You've got to do the layered closure, but no one teaches you that because in residency, um, they were so afraid to do the tightening surgeries because they, they thought it would cause long-term chronic pain. For example, I got trained as as a your gynecologist and using um, placement of the levator muscles into the midline levatorplasty basically and that was a tremendous uh, benefit for me because not just for the reduction in the rectocele the worst kind or, or even the perineocele I was able to get failure rates less than one percent and when you do the traditional repair when you do plication or site-specific repair, you know, your failures, failure rates are 10 to 20%. Plus, the levator plasty actually reduced the diameter of the vagina. So my personal um, way of doing uh, a vaginoplasty is I, I'll take care of the, the rectocele first, and then I, I will do um, a levator plasty also to reduce the entire diameter of the vagina. And that's where I got a, a lot of 
crap from doctors telling me that I was going to cause long-term pain. They, they yeah, kept telling and, me. And, and yeah. have we? Have we? No, 30, 37 years of me doing this, my, my um, uh, long-term dyspareunia rate is, is less than the, the um, reported um, complication rate doing a standard posterior repair. My failure rates are lower um, and my patient satisfaction is higher. There, is, there are times um, where I do it too tight or the patient switches partner to a larger partner, a, a larger diameter size partner, and I'll have to um, release uh, or loosen the vaginal canal a little bit. It's a minor procedure, so that's a risk that I tell the patient, but it's it's very, very low. I would I would say in, in my hands, it's probably two or three percent. It's not zero. I have to do some band releases um, every year because I do so many of these, but not very often. Yeah. What is the difference between a vaginoplasty and a perineoplasty? And um, at least my experience when I've looked at other people's uh, websites or I've seen other physicians like put their surgery on YouTube and they're saying they're doing a vaginoplasty, but it's really just a perineoplasty. So could you explain to people um, what the difference is and how would you know if you're you know, looking at different doctors' websites, of, are they really doing a vaginoplasty or are they really just doing a perineoplasty? Well, first, you have to find out if the surgeon is a gynecologist or a plastic surgeon or a cosmetic surgeon. That's the first thing. For example, um, if you read the website for plastic or cosmetic surgeons, they, they use the term either vaginal rejuvenation or vaginoplasty, just read it. I, I, I read it just recently. And then they describe what a vaginoplasty is. But when you read it, if you're a gynecologist and you read it, what they're actually doing is a perineoplasty. They're removing a V-shaped, or I'm sorry, a pyramidal-shaped area right to the level of the hymen, and then a V-shaped area into the perineum. That's a perineoplasty. You and I do those like uh, repairing an episiotomy, right? That's what they're doing, and they're calling it a vaginoplasty. So it depends on what specialty is, is telling you what they're doing. Really, look up, go to the plastic surgery website or go to the cosmetic surgery website and look at their description. They are not going deep into the vaginal canal. They're, they are not putting levator muscles together. They're not going down to the ischial spines. Now, for me, as a gynecologist, you're a gynecologist, my definition of a vaginoplasty is going deeper than the perineum. My work is actually past the perineum. The perineum, for those, if the lay public will, will see this video, the perineum is what you see. It's that space between the opening of the vagina and the opening of the rectum. When only that is fixed to make it look like it's narrower or smaller, that's a perineoplasty. That is not a vaginoplasty, okay? No matter how you describe it, that's a perineoplasty. A vaginoplasty to reduce the diameter to, and to increase friction during sex is when you go deeper inside, almost to the top of the vagina, at least to the level of these bones on the side of the, the pelvis called ischial spine. There's one on each side. You palpate it and you feel it. You dissect all the way down there. And then once you um, expose the levator muscles, those are the muscles on the side, you then bring those muscles to the midline and create a new um, a new hammock and and push the rectum down so it's not bulging out. And at the same time, you fix the opening 
make the opening pretty and tight, but you also bring those muscles together deep inside the levators and you create a narrow, narrower vaginal canal. And that is that in my definition is the true vaginoplasty. It's not just fixing the opening. You can't just fix the door. You got to fix the entire hallway. Now, what would you say to people that would say, well, I'll just do Kegels or get physical therapy, or there's some devices, uh, some vaginal weights you can put in the vagina. Uh, why can't somebody just do this? Well, those are great tools. Really, they are. They're great tools for something called stress urinary incontinence. And in some cases, they may help the overactive bladder. So for example, kegels will strengthen the muscles, right? So that you can um, hold your urine or stop your urinary flow in the middle or reduce the accidents when you cough, sneeze, and jump. But kegels don't do anything for narrowing the vagina. They just strengthen the muscles. They don't do any of this. They just strengthen this. So they don't do any of this. Those, those balls, the Benoit balls and those vaginal weights also force you to clench and strengthen those muscles. So they may work for incontinence, but they do no help in reducing the diameter of the vagina and they won't increase friction. If the patient is, gets strong enough that they can clench their muscles, they may be able to grasp their partner better, but it doesn't reduce the diameter of the vagina. And, and you know, when you clench, it's just for a short period of time. You can't clench the whole time you're having sex. It's you're exhausted and you're, you're thinking about clenching the whole time and it's not pleasurable because it feels, man, it's too much work. My patients tell me it's too much work. It's too much work to get an orgasm. And, and so that's not the ideal way to do it, but it helps in incontinence. Sure. Let's, we talked about that you and I both perform these procedures in the office. Um, if a physician is listening to this and they were like, that's crazy. Like, why would you do something like this in the office? Let's, let's dive in a little bit more about the, the safety of these types of procedures in the office versus, versus an operating room. And, um, you know, way back when, when I first started doing this, I was concerned like, oh, our patient's going to want to have this in the operating room. And so at the time, I actually did contact my local hospitals of, well, what would be the price if I gave people an option of doing this in the hospital? And uh, even before COVID, it, you know, it was just ridiculous of what a self-pay cost would be because these are procedures that are not covered by insurance of a vaginal tightening for sensation and things like that. But then post COVID, it was just ridiculous. So now I don't even give people an option of having these procedures performed in, in a hospital setting, but let's just talk about the safety of uh, yeah. doing this in the office. Well, let's talk about, uh, you hit on it, the price first, if you do it in the hospital or the surgery center, you're cost is 14 to 16 dollars or 1400 to 1600 extra per hour for the patients and these will take you a couple hours and so easily the patient has an extra fee of about three grand okay and that's just an average case such as a, a vaginoplasty or labioplasty so bringing into the office one the, the gynecologist who brings this <clears throat> or the plastic surgeon who brings this into the office will be price competitive because now they've saved their patients all this money and the patient 
may choose you because they look at the bottom line and and your your procedure in the office is about three thousand dollars cheaper basically if you look three thousand i don't know where you got your prices for mine were like in the ten thousand range yeah well i i negotiated my surgery center to limit my my cost to about 15 about fifteen hundred dollars to sixteen hundred dollars per hour so i that, that was with a lot of negotiation and uh, most people, I had a lot of cases that I brought in, so they were able to negotiate that fee for me. But if you don't do a lot of them, you're right. It will be five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 extra. Mine was a negotiated fee gotcha. for my patient. So so there's, there's the price advantage right there. So for the doctor, the, the patient sees, yeah, okay, so this doctor costs less and I'm going to get the same results. And I, so I'll choose to do it in, in her office. I'll choose her to do the procedure. And then they hear that there's no tube in your throat. There's no needle in your spine. And, you know, you've seen my the way I do it. I don't even have an IV. There's no IV. The patient's sipping water the whole case. She has a straw. She has the water right beside her. And she's sipping. She's talking to me. And uh, uh, the patient has had a great breakfast. It's not an NPO. The patient's awake and talking. So we make sure that they've, they've had a, a, a good breakfast and they have, they're have they very well hydrated. So the safety is there because we know how to numb it. And it, it's taken um, a, a decade to figure out the protocol, but the, do you mind if I share the protocol? So the, the doctor who may be watching may understand that how safe it is. Sure. So, so the patient comes into the office and we give them Ativan and maybe a little narcotic. Sometimes they don't want the narcotic, but usually we give them like a, um, a couple milligrams of Ativan and anywhere from two to four milligrams of Dilaudid. If I have Demerol, I'll use Demerol. And they come in also after having placed numbing cream, a 30% BLT cream, bupivacaine, lidocaine, tetracaine. They place it on their vulva or wherever we're doing surgery. If I'm gonna do anal skin tags at the same time, we'll put that numbing cream around the anal canal and if I'm doing a vaginoplasty, like we're discussing, I put some of that um, numbing cream deep inside the vagina. I'll tell them, just put in your finger and put it in as, as far in as you can. That that should be enough to numb the opening at least. So by the time they get into my office, um, they've had an hour of numbing. And then um, all the consents are signed already the prior day. I've answered all their questions. Uh, and then I give them those pills. And then what I, I do is I use a device called predictive permeation. It's a wonderful device. I, I probably couldn't be as successful in my office vaginoplasty if I didn't have this device, even labioplasty. It's a device that changes the polarity of your skin. You put the numbing cream on the vulva or the vagina, and there's this one device and you you use it all the way around. And what this, this device does, it uses milliampere energy, anywhere from one to three to five, milliamperes, really low level energy, but the polarity changes. I can't remember exactly, but let's say a thousand times a second. So the polarity changes so rapidly that the water channels of the skin are frozen and macromolecules, big molecules and small molecules all go down this water channel. And for us, it's numbing cream goes down the water channels and gets them number. And so now they have the initial numbing when they come in, and now we make it even number. So now I'm able to do my injections and they barely feel it. I use my injections with bicarb. And so with the bicarb, it's made a world difference. They barely 
feel the injection. They may feel a little achy at the initial injection around the ischial spines or the lev levator muscles. But after injecting, let's say 10 cc's per side and 10 cc's at the opening, um, the patient is pretty numb and ready for your dissection. You can dissect like a standard posterior repair um, and you can dissect all the way down to the ischial spine very comfortably. And if the patient's uncomfortable, feeling pain, you've got extra and you just inject it. I use a 30 gauge needle and I go exactly to the place that they're tender. I'll palpate it and I'll say, is this where you're tender? And they'll say, yeah, I can feel that a little bit. And then um, I'll, I'll check it. And if they're still tender, I give maybe a CC in this area, two CCs. So I'm, I'm doing this entire cases with about 40 CCs of Marcane with Epi. And then at the very end of the case, let's say I've, I've done all my dissection. I've done all my um, uh, um, posterior repair, levator, bringing it to the middle, trimming off vaginal mucosa all the way to the top of the vagina, and then suturing those in layers. I'll, I'll close the, the levator muscles in a couple layers, and then, then I'll close the vaginal mucosa in one to two layers. And so that's typically four layers of closure. So I've never seen one break down in 37 years because there's so many layers down there. And then at, at the very end, I will use Exparel. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's long-acting bupivacaine. It's bupivacaine coated in a liposome coat. And so I inject it at the very end, and the patients will then have anywhere from one to three, three days average of good pain management, pain control. I've had a patient last as long as five days. Um, I then put a Foley catheter in for about four days because sometimes... Um, you, it's hard to pee when you have so much pressure down there. They'll, the patient will feel more pressure than actual pain. And so um, I, I put that fully in, they walk home. They go home right after the, the vaginoplasty, posterior repair, and even with the labioplasty, if, if they want to do that all together. So I'm able to do all those things. I, uh, the labial surgery, the um, posterior repair, the vaginoplasty, perineoplasty. And now I'm doing more anal skin tags than ever. We, we've become the anal skin tag capital of of the of the midwest and south at dallas we there we have so many cases uh we're found we we really market for anal skin tags and all the colorectal surgeons general surgeons really don't want to do it so now it's part of our package right it, it's it's fantastic yeah why is it that so many um colorectal surgeons uh don't want to do these procedures. And that's usually the first question I ask patients that are coming and asking about anal skin tags is, have you ever seen anybody else for this? And I would say the majority of patients have reported, yeah, I went to a colorectal doctor and I was told this isn't a medical problem. So, you know, we don't do anything about it. Has that been your experience? Most yeah, people have seen Yeah, that's the problem. Else? The general surgeon and the colorectal surgeon even the GI. And I, I had one lady that actually saw a dermatologist who removed the small anal tag for her, but they don't want to do it. They just say, uh, it's not covered by your insurance. And that's the number one reason it's not covered by insurance. And if it's covered by insurance, some insurance will pay for it. It's not worth the doctor's time. They'll get less than a hundred dollars for spending all that time. You know how much um, effort it is and how tender and painful it is. If you don't know what you're doing, you there's, there's a special, way of numbing these areas and i discussed what what it is how i do it but if you don't do it that way it's one of the worst procedures to do in the office this is even more painful than a vaginoplasty or a labioplasty so that's why colorectals don't want to do it because one it's painful they get paid very little and so why do it 
And so we capture the market. We aggressively market for this because we know how to numb it. We know how to take care of it. And with the radio frequency or laser devices that are out there now, uh, the the procedure is exceptionally safe and the results are just beautiful. Yeah. I think it's really only been covered by insurances if it's combined with with hemorrhoids. And then they usually take care of the hemorrhoids, but do a... um, Aren't, aren't doing a great aesthetic result for the anal skin tags so and and that's that's what i see i i get a lot of redos they they i've had patients who've had both internal and external hemorrhoids taken care of but the doctor did not want to do the anal skin tags you know how big they are sometimes because it's wrapping all the way around the anus no colorectal surgeon wants to do that because one it's only cosmetic and they don't get paid much for it and the recovery is so tough for these patients if they don't have the proper pain management. Who, who wants to deal with that? It's 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 a big headache. But for us, we we look at it as an opportunity. And you know, I uh, my grads all learn how to do anal skin tech. Yeah. What are we? What should we tell our patients of what to expect post vaginoplasty? So well, after vaginoplasty, the the pressure feels like pulling on tailbone because you're putting all these muscles back together into the midline. So I tell my patients, the worst you're going to feel is rectal pressure. It's going to feel like something, someone's pulling on your tailbone and you're going to waddle because it's going to be uncomfortable for your, your first week for sure. And you're going to have to take um, ibuprofen and a mild narcotic. And I typically tell them you need to take it together. Okay. That's how to manage pain. And if they've had an anal skin tag, removed along with that, I give them a lot of numbing cream so that they can use that in the anal area so that when they have bowel movements, it's comfortable. But more important, my, my number one complication really after a vaginoplasty, it's not bleeding. The bleeding is very little, very, very little. It's it's uh, not infection. If you're going to get an infection, it's a bladder infection, not, not the rectum infection or anal tag infection. It's a bladder infection. And then all these patients go home on antibiotics. But the biggest complication is constipation. You know, I have a whole sheet, post-op instruction sheet. And number one thing it says there is you've got to be on your milk of magnesia. That's my secret weapon. Milk of magnesia, prunes, prune juice, fiber, even colase, occasional dulcolax suppositories, whatever it takes to keep your stools the consistency of toothpaste. And we tell this to the patient on their pre-op. When they're talking to us, when I'm doing surgery, we review the, the post-op care, they go home with this sheet. And then we yep. call them the next day and we ask them, how are you doing? Have you had a bowel movement? Is it the consistency of toothpaste? That's the goal. So if they're able to keep it the consistency of toothpaste, they do just fine. So the first week's a little tough because there's a lot of rectal pressure, but we encourage them to walk around. There's no babying. There's no sitting around the house just watching TV. We tell them, um, walk around as much as you can tolerate. You're going to get fatigued fast because you know your body produces these things called prostaglandins that make you feel tired. But when you take your Motrin, it's like an energy pill almost. And please walk around as much as you can. Move your legs. We don't want blood clots. In, in all the years I've been doing vaginoplasties, about 36 years, I've had one pulmonary embolus. And that was from a patient I did in the hospital. She had Levinox and all that stuff. Um, and she was a doctor's kid, doctor's uh, daughter. She ended up with bilateral pulmonary embolus six weeks later. And that's my one pulmonary embolus. But whether you do that at home or in the office, 
it wouldn't have made a difference. She she had it six weeks later, and then I have to admit her, and we had to dissolve those clots. But um, it's an exceptionally safe procedure in the office because the patient's awake. They're talking to you. Um, I, I've had, uh, I'll, let me just talk about some of the complications I've had. UTI, probably less than 1%, too tight. I, I did it too tight, and or she changed to a partner that's larger. That's anywhere from 1% to 2%, somewhere there. And I'd have to loosen it. Most of the time, if it's too tight, they can use vaginal softening exercises, which is the use of your fingers or dilators with vaginal estrogens over a couple of weeks to stretch the, the tissues. And that's usually all you need. But you will get the occasional one where that isn't enough and you're going to have to um, loosen it, actually make an incision right in the middle and create um, a band release. And so it's it's been very, very successful now. Will the patient who had a vaginoplasty be orgasmic? No, I, I, I can't guarantee that. That's a, a separate issue. My surgery, I tell the patients, you'll get increased friction. We'll get rid of the bulge. It'll look better. You'll feel more tightness in the opening. But orgasms, I, I don't know if you will have any or will be improved. Um, that's one thing I, I, I don't promise. And I tell yeah. the patients, usually for, for orgasms, you may need other modalities to help you. For example, um, um, platelet-rich plasma injection of PRP, uh, the O-shot in the genital area. And so that one, I, I, I don't promise. Yes, I couldn't agree more. As I tell patients, uh, you know, this is a procedure to tighten the vagina, period. But there are so many other factors that go into good sex. So the things you mentioned, hormone optimizations, there are certain medications like SSRIs that can interfere with orgasms. So, you know, it's multifactorial. And this is just one of the many things that can go into, you know, good sex. So, well, after you do the, the surgery, I tell the patient, okay, we've had a good start. I think we're going to transform your life once you're healed. And I give them, I tell them healing is between six and eight weeks. I tell them as soon as four weeks, sometimes all your sutures either fall out or we have removed them. Typically, if they live in the area, they come in and I trim the, the sutures off at week number two because those sutures get itchy and they want them out. They're, they're, they get very itchy. And if they get very itchy and they live far away from me, I'll tell them to use Benadryl cream and that works really well. But if they live close to me and they're willing to drive in, they come in at two weeks and I trim them. Uh, more than half of my patients are from out of state. And so I, I just tell them to use Benadryl cream and the sutures absorb on their own. So for, for maintenance, I tell the patients after surgery, you've got to be on vaginal estrogens. The estrogens will increase the blood flow. It'll increase the production of collagen. So your skin is improved and thick and not thin and glassy. It'll also increase the elastin so that your skin is stretchy. So on all my patients, I put them all on vaginal estrogens every, basically every night for six weeks. And after that, if they're if they're perimenopausal or menopausal, I'll tell them to maintain it with vaginal estrogens two to three times per week. My favorite is estrogen cream, such as Premarin or Estrace in the first six weeks, but to maintain them um, for ease of use and convenience, I usually switch over to um, Invexi. That's my personal favorite. I like Invexi yeah. because it's easy. It's a little pill that you put in uh, twice twice a week, two to three times a week, and it's easy to maintain. And then I tell the patient also, 
that if, for example, if the patient had an O-shot or something to help their sensitivity, you're gonna, you should have those touch-ups every six to 12 months. The O-shot, the injection of PRP into the clitoris or the G-spot area, have that done at least once a year. And then if, if you're menopausal, you wanna keep your tissues the best possible and you wanna improve your sensitivity, I, you know, I, I may, may be biased because I recommend um, radio frequency on these areas. For me specifically, I like Thermiva because it has the right wavelength, uh, 460 wavelength to increase the density of the small nerve fibers on the clitoris and the G-spot area. And many of my patients with this treatment have a reduced time to orgasms. I did a 2016 study published um, and it showed that when you use radio frequency, without even the O-shot, without the PRP, just radio frequency alone, you can reduce the time to orgasm by one third to one half. And I found that to be um, continuous, e even after a vaginoplasty, even if you're in menopause and onwards, if you keep um, the radio frequency treatments maintained at least once a year, I have patients who come in every six months, but at least once a year, it seems that the, the time to orgasm is reduced and it's easier to achieve it. Um, it doesn't work for everyone, but that's my my personal um, yeah. So uh, you are using radio frequency post vaginal plasty as a as a maintenance. Yes, I do. I use radio yeah. frequency as my maintenance, and I yeah. tell them you've got to, and the way I approach it is, <clears throat> you just spent a lot of money on this procedure. You have to maintain your investment. Keep your investment uh, as pristine as it was from from the first month after surgery. And so that's how I tell the patient and they understand it. You've got to maintain your investment. It's just like when you get tightening of the face with, with lasers or with RF, if you just do it one and done, it's, it's worthless. You've got to maintain it. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, and I do the same is a lot of patients combine um, cosmetic gynecology procedures. So somebody may choose to have a labiaplasty minora with a vaginoplasty or a majoroplasty with a vaginoplasty and, um, we'll, we'll let you go. We won't talk to you all day today about all those other procedures, but I want to just talk a little bit about maybe the controversy in general about cosmetic gynecology and ACOG's opinion on this. I think they've definitely, the, the pendulum is definitely swinging. Um, and, uh, it's not as, uh, I don't know, taboo or, Maybe if you could just comment on that. I know you were recently asked to speak at a grand rounds about cosmetic gynecology. So that just tells me that um, things are definitely moving the other way. Well, when I first started doing this, definitely, definitely there was a bias um, against gynecologists doing labiaplasty surgery or anything cosmetic in the genital area. The 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 toughest ones were our own. Um, organizations, the American College of OBGYN was very, very much anti-cosmetic gynecology. They had two committee opinions um, uh, published. One was uh, 2007, I believe. And basically it says it's a not, not a necessary procedure. It's un, un, untried. There's not enough long-term data. It's unsafe, et cetera. And that, you know, you should consider other things. Like if you, for example, if you're one who wanted labiaplasty. They even wrote things like, well, wear uh, a panty liner or a pad to hide it. I mean, really silly stuff. Tuck it in, basically, and 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 do all these things or just live with it. Let's say you have labia that are touching your 
in our thighs already. They, they basically live with it. It's like telling someone who has asymmetric breasts or a crooked nose, oh, just live with it because it's part of normal. You know, these patients um, want an improvement in their appearance. That's no difference in the GYN world. But we had that that problem for a decade. You know, you faced it. I faced it. A lot of GYNs would say, what are you doing that? That's normal stuff. I've had so many nasty letters um, and emails sent to me. And I read it and I go, well, all right. I mean, we're offering something for women. Feminists want us to give options. And here we're giving options. And there we're, we're getting slammed for giving the patient options that they choose. Right? And so... Um, 10 years later, the uh, American College of OBGYN write another opinion paper. Basically, they limit it to teenagers, basically saying, well, if they have an issue with it, they should consider all other options, like we said 10 years ago. But, you know, as long as you know the risk benefits and options, you, you it's okay to get a labioplasty. But if you read that article, it, it, it specifically focused on teenagers. They didn't say anything about them, mature women. So, you know, now fast forward five years later, I think the, the, the minds of the American College of OBGYN and organizations such as AAGL and OGS have completely been opened because now American Urogynecologic Society has a working group um, and they're writing committee opinions on this and they're actually looking at it. We may not agree with everything, but at least they're looking at it. And American College of OBGYN has sponsored me now twice District 9 and District 4, they allowed me, they invited me, they paid for all my expenses and wanted me to discuss cosmetic gynecology. So I just, this summer, I just did District 4 for the West Indies, Argentina, the East Coast, you know, and I just did that one. And District 9, two years ago, I did for the Armed Forces District. And then um, I got invited to Grand Rounds at Loma Linda University to talk about this to their residents. Um, I was able to do a Grand Rounds also at a Dallas Presbyterian Hospital and and other places, I've done quite a few talks to the general lay OBGYN who are wanting to learn about this. They're, they're, they may not go into it, but they want to know what it is. And so I think our college is slowly becoming accepting of this because I'm not the only one they've sponsored to, to talk about this in their district meetings. I, I really believe soon, if they don't do it, they realize if they don't do this and teach their own fellows and residents, this is going to go to the plastic surgeons or go to the cosmetic surgery field. And I don't yeah, think well, our plastic surgeons have been do plastic surgeons have been doing it for yes. forever. So yes. um, the, which leads me to my next topic. Let's end on this is uh, I know I trained with you um, and training with you at the Allenstein Institute um, versus doctors who may think like, okay, well, I'm I'm a gynecologist. This is my area. I know how to do this. What is the difference? Is mm. obviously I know the difference, but since you are a teacher of um of this advanced cosmetic technique, can you explain to people why if you're going to start doing labiaplasties that what you learn in OBGYN residency in my opinion, really isn't enough if you're trying to achieve a cosmetic result. Certainly if somebody has a medical problem, I think one time I had somebody who had this big 10 centimeter cyst hanging off of her labia. And that I felt like was a medical problem. I I, I removed the cyst, billed it to insurance, but 
from a when women who are seeking a labiaplasty or cosmetic gynecology for aesthetic reasons that are not covered by insurance why it should be done by somebody who has extensive training with somebody like yourself in at your institute well you you hit on the on the head is that one we're not trained it's not part of the program of any residency or fellowship in OBGYN. I believe cosmetic surgery, uh, I'm friends with the former president of the American College of Cosmetic Surgery. They're trying to increase the teaching in this department. So they're they're dedicating time for their fellows to do it. They're using, um, uh, some are using my Gynflix. Um, I have a platform online with all my decades worth of surgeries and, and it's called Gynflix, G-O-I-N-F-L-I-X. It's a cheap plug here, but that's where they're learning at least the basics so that they know how to do the steps. Because unless you know the steps, you didn't learn it in residency or fellowship. You didn't learn it in your guide fellowship. You didn't learn it in Jin Onk fellowship because it wasn't there. It's not taught. It's not part of the curricula. So um, I do a lot of medical malpractice work. And the biggest problem is the gynecologist who does it for the first time. They get sued. I, I look at my lawsuits that I'm defending or or giving an opinion on. Almost always, it's the gynecologist who's done who who gets sued in their first ten cases because one, they're too aggressive. They're removing too much. They don't know the anatomy of the regions that retract. There's a region in the labia that retract dramatically, and what you think you're leaving labia is actually gone. And also, they don't know how to get rid of dog ears. That wasn't trained. You didn't learn that doing episiotomy repairs. They don't know how, how to reduce uh, the, the clitoral hood area. They don't really know the anatomy of where the clitoral nerves are. And so these the, the doctor who has zero training is the one I end up um, uh, giving an opinion on legal medical legally and, and trying to defend. But it's, it's really dangerous. Um, the, the doctor with no training doing these, you look at their CV and where did you learn how to do cosmetic gynecology and you can't find it. There's, there's no, there's no courses for it. And the defense that I hear all the time is, well, I learned that in residency. We do a lot of deliveries of baby repaired torn labias. Uh, how many of, the, of that did you do in four years? Uh, one or two, right? And so it's, it's hard to defend these, these doctors without formal training. So you 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 must be trained you got to go to the conferences you got to go to uh, a live hands-on training if it's not me go to the ones in in europe dr bader has one he's a graduate graduate of mine in india dr sejal ajmera uh, egypt um, uh, has has a good program in dubai and so many of of those around the world, there are a lot of places to train, not just in the US, but you've got to get trained before you actually try doing this or you're going to get in trouble. You'll yeah. eventually get in trouble because that that plaintiff lawyer will ask you specifically, show me your training and show me your case list. Okay. And for patients out there, and there'll be patients watching this, you know what? Go to the doctor's website, look at their CV, find out where they've trained, specifically ask them, where did you get your training? And, and then here's the biggest thing. If they have no pictures of these procedures or have only a handful, be very wary. They will tell you, oh, well, 
I, I don't take pictures because of patient confidentiality, blah, 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 blah. It's because they don't have enough cases. Bottom line yeah, is they don't have I enough cases. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. We, we have issues with patient confidentiality is a lot of patients don't want us to use their pictures. But at the same token, but I still have an album that's this big. Right. Uh, if everybody let me use their pictures, my album would be this big. So um, if you're a patient watching this and you and you come to myself or Dr. Alan Saad, please let us use your pictures. We de-identify any markings and things like that. And they're perfectly confidential because patients want to see before and afters. And so I always really encourage our patients to do that. But sometimes not everybody wants to right their pictures or like you said they live out of town and then we don't see them back for the follow-up pictures and then the follow-up pictures are just not as good a quality for me to put it in my album so that's true uh, one interesting fact i have is the longest span between my before and after pictures was uh, a lady who lived internationally out of the area and she came back for her post-op picture 10 years later all right, there you go. But I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you, Dr. Allenson? Well, um, I just created my new website. I moved from Laguna Beach. Um, I had my 18 years of practice in California and Laguna Beach. Before that, 10 years in LA. But I just moved to Dallas. And so um, I also have a, a secondary office in Las Vegas. So I'm in Dallas and Las Vegas. And you can easily find me at allensodinstitute.com. So just allensodinstitute.com is where all my uh, new material is. We just launched it two weeks ago, so we're still building it. And for the doctors who want to learn um, how to do these surgeries and, and do an online teaching, um, you can very inexpensively join gyneflix.com. It's G-Y-N-F-L-I-X. Gyneflix.com has my decades of all my my very intricate and detailed videos plus my 3d photos it has all my regular photos too and you can join my newsletter i have two newsletter one for the doctors it's called it's called cosmetic gynecology newsletter um and for for the lay public i have one called feminine wellness newsletter and you can find all that on my website you can just click on it and you can join it so it's pretty easy allensideinstitute.com thanks for joining us this was so helpful Thanks for listening to Healthy Her. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a quick five-star review on your podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps others discover our show. Do you have questions or want to discuss a particular topic? You can reach us by emailing ask at dramybrenner.com or by calling 513-204-8403 and leaving a voicemail. We might feature your question or comment in an upcoming episode, so don't miss out on the chance to be a part of the conversation. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. We appreciate your support and can't wait to have you back with us next time. Take care and remember, your Healthy Her journey begins with you. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services. 
no patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material, or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical diagnosis or issues that they may have and should seek medical care or advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.